arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. downsized. This book was spawned after Robert P. Fitton was let go from not Spacely Sprockets, but from a major company, which was weird since my territory had a 27% increase during a down economy. The kids were in private school and my wife worked marginally so she could stay at home for the kids. I immediately called a headhunter and drove north of Boston and in the confusion, I locked myself out of my car in zero-degree weather. Yikes! The search for a new job became extended, and all sorts of feelings swirled about me. I eventually found a new job and wrote this book. I ran into my old sales manager a few years later. He left me with the following predilection of an excuse. We uh, messed up, Bob. You were right about your increase. Since we merged our acquisitions, the computer never picked up your total sales. Yeah, well, that sounds like an excuse or a cover, but it was true. I thought about simpler times. Summer, growing up in a small town. Thus, Alan Sackett, burdened with debts I was not, would temporarily be going back to Barkley, Idaho, to claim his Aunt Amanda's inheritance. And that one little girl he liked when he was ten years old. Downsized, a novel of possibilities by Robert P. Fitton begins as we speak. Downsized, Chapter 1 The Lambert Building, Corporate Offices, Los Angeles, California, September 28, 2008 Security is like an invisible bird, soaring and basking in the sun, over the murky storms below. Alan Sackett basked in the sunshine, gaining the approval of the corporate board, and continued gallivanting to the luxurious resorts with his compadre Melinda, all the while running up the tab. His hair was quaffed at Robert's salon bi-weekly. He had his massage therapist Ashley on call 24-7, and he could lock a quick appointment with his acupuncture guru within an hour of placing the call. He was a young man moving up in the business world, a young man equipped with an acute business instinct and a portfolio of assets matched only by his swelling personal debt. He drove his new Mazda MX-5 Miata fast 
holding the wheel firm with his Italian leather gloves. His other car, a Cadillac SUV, was parked in the Hotel Nuevo garage for weekend use. For Alan Sackett, vice president of sales was the next logical step in the corporate chain. His earnings were directly deposited monthly into his portfolio. The rest was paid to the burgeoning charges on his debt. Big Brian, heavier and never a match for Alan in sales or the exercise room, struggled almost a full lap behind him as he crept up the 59th floor track overlooking the coast up to Malibu. I tell you, Brian, I'm in line for the VP sales. I'm the guy. Brian somehow kept pace. A.B., rumors are all around. What rumors? I haven't heard any company rumors. No, not company rumors. I don't like the way the politicians have handed out mortgages to people who couldn't pay back loans. Alan tilted back his head and laughed as he trotted along the window span with a view of Santa Monica and the beach rim to Malibu. You worry too much. I'm not worried. My division has a 20% sales game, buddy. 20%. Melinda and I will be off in Greece in two weeks. You take too many cruises, Alan. <laughs> Melinda and I have our lifestyle, and we intend to exploit our resources. Well, I have zero debts there, buddy. Yeah, no fun. Well, I won't go broke. I don't have to worry about that either. I could retire right now if I wanted to. You're lucky Melinda has a secure position with that financial group. Yeah, she's a maverick. Make more of other people's money that way. I don't trust her. What do you mean you don't trust her? Alan stopped, breathing quickly as his friend caught up. Brian, you're starting to get under my skin. I'm being promoted, and I'll have an office in Miami running the East Coast divisions, or maybe the West Coast. 850 Lambert stores under my thumb. His cell phone, velcroed to his upper arm, buzzed. Sack it. A.B. Melinda, where are you? Her analytical tone sometimes seemed indifferent. Still in Denver. The city is having us run a full lot of the Wellfleet Fund. The mayor wants to avoid any pitfalls down the line. After all, we're talking about renovating the entire city block, but I don't see it. You sound cynical. Well, I'm doing great with Lambert's. Well, good for you. Things are precarious, A.B. I'm taking everything out of the money markets anyway. Pulling back all my own investments. After I ditched Bear Stearns, I'm totally independent. Right. And I feel secure being away from all that subprime debacle. I don't see the Senate passing any bailout bill. It's cash, cash, cash. Are you sure? Don't worry about it. Cash is good, A.B. I won't be arriving back in the city until Sunday afternoon. That cuts out the Palm Springs junket unless you want to head out there early, A.B. Take a puddle jumper over Sunday if you can't make it direct or a limo from LAX. I'll leave you my email as to my plans. Brightening Ocean heard his eyes. Will do. You can reach me on my third cell phone. Hey, I enjoyed that video conference last night. Melinda paused as someone had shouted in the background. I'm wanted back in the conference room. Anything on your promotions? Well, I'm still waiting. You can upload any announcement by Lambert's into my personal mail. You bet. Keep in touch.
attached the phone to the Velcro slot on his arm and resumed jogging. Weird. Brian tightened his lips. What's up? Her dissolving her investments for cash. I had my doubts. Oh, she's always wheeling and dealing, Alan. Alan rolled his eyes and grinned. He rustled his friend's dark hair. Doubt is not a pleasant mental state, but it certainly is a ridiculous one. Voltaire. Ah, there he goes with the quotes again. Don't worry, Bry. I'll take you with me to Miami when I'm promoted. His phone buzzed again, and he removed it as he kept jogging. Maybe they canceled the audit. An older but clearer voice came into his earpiece. Excuse me? Who the hell is this? Asked Alan, picking up the pace. He gazed across the gray smog layer, tapering to the San Gabriel Mountains near San Bernardino. Am I speaking with Alan Sackett? Am I on the air? What is this? The distant voice spoke again. Mr. Sackett, my name is Charlie McGowan from Barkley, Idaho. I'm the attorney representing the estate of your late aunt. Aunt Amanda. You sound out of breath. Is this an inopportune time? No, no. McGowan chuckled and shuffled some papers. I don't think you understand. This could take a little time to explain. Well, my workout ends after the next lap, Mr. McGowan, after which I shower and put together next week's projections for the senior vice president of my company. Then I get in my car and I leave town. Sure, I'll talk to you later. Bye now. He ended the call, stared at the phone, and stopped running. Brian turned and finished the lap as Alan opened up the stairwell door. He felt good as his body wound down. He stretched his muscles all the way to the elevator doors and then pushed the button. He hadn't thought about Barkley, Idaho for a long time. When the letter arrived last week stating that his great aunt had died of natural causes, his emotions stirred back to that one summer he spent in Barkley when he was ten years old. Aunt Amanda owned a little red general store with Uncle Ned. Alan smiled as he remembered opening the wood screen door. A metal-plated advertisement for moonbeam bread crisscrossed the frame. He would buy baseball cards three series ahead of everybody else back home in Pasadena. Back then, he walked down the dirt lane with Suni. Suni's smile, bright green eyes, and curly blonde hair remained in his thoughts even after all these years. He wondered what happened to her. Hello, A.B., hello. Brian swished his open hand in front of Alan's eyes. Thinking about that blonde in marketing? No, I, actually, I was a million miles away, Brian. I really was. Well, you better get your head back on for your presentation to Archer. Get your projections together if you want that promotion. Alan slid the mouse across the pad. The red and blue graphics, broken down in pie wedges, as well as the bar graphs, appeared on the side monitor. Numbers didn't lie. It had stacked up as another great week. Only two stores had dipped, but the losses were insignificant. Archer would congratulate him once he read the report. Alan clicked on the printer and sat back in the smooth vinyl chair. He took his cell phone off the table and tapped into Melinda's voicemail. Hey! Figures last week, 57%. Market share, half a percentage point for the year. Total hours worked by yours truly, 81. Hope I made your day. The printer shook and the colorful charts nudged out of the top. One of his secretaries rushed through the open glass door. Mr. Sackett, there's a, a revision on the Sacramento South store. Alan turned from the printer. 
up or down? She turned up her rose lips. Up, of course. Shall I include it in the presentation? Megan, don't sweat the small stuff. We may need it. Alan stood and opened his mouth for a few seconds before he spoke. Oh, come on, Megan. Sir? She asked and she set two steaming cups of coffee on the table. We're all doing a good job here. Don't worry. He walked over and tapped her shoulder. We're all fine. Megan turned down her mouth and looked half convinced. Maybe you're right, Mr. Sackett. I know I'm right. I'll see you after I schmooze, Archer. She nodded and scooted around the corner. Alan went back to the printer and collated the pages himself. It would be a short and simple presentation, just the way Nate Archer liked it. He looked at the graphs again and smiled. After this report, Archer might offer him the VP position on the spot. Alan clamped the corners and slid the report down the long wooden table. Then he walked to the window and half-closed the blind slats. Archer did not like a bright room. For a moment, he debated whether he should have printed the hard copy. A monitor display would impress Archer. He shook his head. All Archer wanted was the numbers. Three monitors blasted out news, stock, and business reports, and something out of Vegas. Archer's white hair and blue eyes gave him a ghostly appearance as he moved into the room. This is not good. That market is very volatile right now. I have the reports and they're good. Archer's suit coat now off, tightened his red suspenders and rolled up his sleeves. I've been fearing this thing for ten years or longer. You don't lend money to people who don't have the means to pay it back. I have a 57% increase, 20% overall. Alan, uh, I've been with the board all night. We're trying to take measures to head off this possible calamity. My market share is a half a percentage higher than last year, Mr. Archer. You know, they should have passed that bill in Congress yesterday, growled Archer. Walmart and Kmart won't like the market share going to Lambert's. Better to come out of somebody else's pocket, not ours. The bubble is bursting, man. We're down over 700 points. Archer tossed the report on the table and searched through his briefcase. Excuse me one moment. Alan's voicemail beeped on his cell phone. As Archer carried on, Alan accessed his own voicemail. Maybe Melinda was calling back early. Mr. Sackett, this is attorney Charles McGowan. I just spoke with you. Alan flipped open his eyes. How did he get my numbers? I would at your convenience like to discuss the disposition of your aunt's estate. I know you're an important person uh, down there in L.A., but this estate is not what you'd call lucrative. I just need to close it off my books. Give me a call. Alan jotted down a home and office number up in Barkley, Idaho, into his notebook. The office door opened and Archer reappeared with a thin piece of green paper. I'm sorry, Alan. Alan shut off the phone. No problem, Nate. I don't have to get out into the field for a few hours. The skies above LAX buzzed with aircraft and he knew he'd be airborne within an hour and a half. He thought about attending a couple of nightclub shows in Palm Springs, even though Melinda would not arrive until Sunday afternoon. Archer gripped the green paper and tightened his bulldog face. You won't be going out in the field, A.B. Oh, change in plans? Yes, there are changes, but I am forced by Mr. Lambert to implement this because of the instability in the economy. What? Archer placed his hands on the edge of the table and squinted. Alan, your position has been eliminated. Alan produced a perplexed smile and stared at Archer from the far end of the table. Oh, 
you're sliding me up, down, and around. This is a complicated situation. In order to remain viable, we have to minimize our expenses and extend our profits as the economy tanks. We'll take care of you, A.B. His stomach flooded. What do you mean? The severance package is standard. What? I had a 20% increase. Archer checked his watch and lifted the coffee cup to his lips. Yes, yes, you've done a great job. It's just as a company, we need to be in another position. It has nothing to do with you. Well, it has everything to do with me. You're firing me, Nate. A.B., don't take it personally. It's a downsizing move. You'll find something. Alan stood upright, slowly closed and locked his briefcase. He worried about his overwhelming debt. Maybe Archer was right. Yet he had done such a good job, and now he was fired. I'll clear things off the computer and the voicemail. Archer stared with his lower teeth jutting out. Should be completed within about a half an hour. A.B., listen, relax. Go take some downtime. Archer released his grip on the table and marched over to Alan. A reference letter will be prepared, and I will, of course, accept any inquiries from potential employers uh, if we recover from this crash. But why, Mr. Archer? Twenty percent. Mechanics of the corporate and economic world, A.B. He raised his brows as he sighed. Like anything else, you just roll with it. Alan peered into his crusty blue eyes. I don't want to just roll with it. Has the world gone crazy? How is this my fault? Things used to be simple. You do a good job, you get promoted. Now you do a good job and you get fired. Archer nodded and shook his hand. He checked his watch again as Alan carried the briefcase from his office. Megan looked up inconspicuously from her desk as he passed. She probably was unaware he was let go. What's the matter there, A.B.? Alan clamped his jar and continued through her office. He crossed the outer area, filled with young workaholics. The elevator, he smiled. Maybe being fired wasn't all that bad. He would get some downtime, slide into a new job, and collect the severance. But he had accumulated too much debt. The doors opened and he entered the stuffy car. Megan stood in her office. Alan did not see Archer. Slowly the doors closed, ending an eight-year segment of his life. Downsize by R.P. Fitton, Chapter 2 Alan followed the bellhop past the lush trees and plants of the small arboretum. During the plane flight to Palm Springs, he wanted to do business as usual utilizing his laptop or making a few cell phone calls. He contemplating buzzing Melinda, but could not admit failure. The conversation with Archer bounced through his mind. Was he really fired? He understood about corporate buyouts and too many people on the payroll, but why him? Being fired also required a legal opinion. From the plane, he placed a call to Nick Conti and left a message. Nick had done extensive legal work on behalf of corporations. Maybe he could pressure a settlement with Lambert's. The bellboy unlocked the suite and lugged the bags inside. Alan spotted him a $10 tip, and the kid nodded as he left. The empty room exaggerated his failure. He took off his coat and fell back on the wide bed. The chilled air raced from the central air ducts as he faced the white popcorn ceiling. Like a computer on an endless search, he tracked everything he did at Lambert's during the past six months. He knew the mistakes, but nothing approached grounds for firing. He saw a Federal Express box on the breakfast table. 
For a few seconds he sprawled out, but then he sprang from the bed. He pulled the tab and slid open a reflective red package. A blue card with Melinda's handwriting was tucked under the green bow. He ran his index finger under the glued flap and opened the envelope. A.B. 57%. Great job. Upgraded memory will boost your productivity. See you Sunday after. Melinda. Alan pulled back the ribbon and ripped the red metallic paper. Inside was an upgraded laptop. All dressed up. Nowhere to go. His cell phone rang. Alan Sackett. Alan, this is Ralph Portman. I'm calling all my clients to quell any panic. Well, I'm sure the market will bounce back, Ralph. Alan, I tried to make changes, but you were heavily invested in the housing market. He headed for the window and pushed the drape button. The straight green fairway was overshadowed by a jagged Mount San Jacinto peeking toward the clouds. How much did I lose? Alan, your entire portfolio is down to $150,000. What? What kind of a schmuck outfit are you running, Ralph? I owe ten times that amount. None of us saw this coming. Holy God! He banged his hand against his forehead. I'm screwed. I'm totally screwed. You have to reinvest, Ralph. Alan moved the phone away from his ear and then threw it onto the bed. None of the last few hours made any sense. He stared outside across the gold golf course. Archer treated him with no more dignity than the numbers on the report. Addition and subtraction of profits resulted in Alan Sackett being caught in the middle. Now he had no job and his portfolio had just crashed. The credit cards would only last a few months. He would need cash or at least a refinancing of his debt. The phone rang back on the dresser. But Alan stared at the mountaintop down the rocky talus below. He deliberately strutted across the thick blue rug. This is Alan Sackett. Alan, this is uh, Nick. Alan smiled and he could feel the adrenaline surging. Nick, I was fired unjustly this morning. Alan, Alan, come on, the market just crashed. And my portfolio's been wiped out. Look. What happened to me was unfair. I need to sue Lamberts. Alan. You know I've done a superb job, and I had a 20% increase over last year. They said I was downsized. Were you? I guess I was, but they can't do that. How old are you, Alan? I'm 39. Well, certainly no class action discrimination. Did you say anything to precipitate this termination? No. I was brought in to do a report, and Nate Archer watched his... The market went into freefall. Severance? Yeah, six weeks. Did you accept it? Asked Nick, moving some papers around. No, not yet. If you do, it will negate any further legal action on your behalf. Alan gestured as he spoke and looked at his matted blonde hair in the mirror. He wanted a shower or maybe a swim in the pool. Look, I need that money. I have a tremendous debt ceiling. But they can't just fire me. Sure they can. That makes no sense. You fire people for doing a good job? Doesn't matter. It's their company. Is this the United States of America? Maybe this is some bad dream. I was always brought up to think when you did a good job, you got rewarded, not fired. Not the way it works. It's how you fit into a corporate strategy. He pinched the bridge of his nose. Listen, let me type something up and I'll email it to you, Nick. 
Nick cleared his throat as if he wanted to say something to someone in his office or on another line. If you want to, Alan, send over some stuff, but I'll be damned if I'm optimistic about legal action. Maybe if I spell it out. Sure, sure. I may need you to keep track of my... See, I've run up a tab, a lot of, a lot of things. How much? Pushing a million dollars. Are you kidding me? I just worry about monthly payments right now. I never thought I'd get fired and lose my portfolio. Have your debts consolidated. I think I'm beyond that now, Nick, said Alan, shaking his head. Ask Melinda. His voice shook as he spoke. I don't even want to tell Melinda. Listen, you'll have a statement from me within an hour. See what you can do. Send me that financial thing, too. Exactly how much you owe and to whom. Bye. Alan set down the phone, trotted over to the table, and dragged his old laptop toward him. Getting another job right away would get him away from insolvency and losing Melinda. Dozens of discount chains would be after him under normal circumstances. It was only a matter of retrieving his resume and emailing it out. He had the experience and the sales figures to back it up. By the time Melinda arrived, he might already have consummated a deal. Alan watched the next email leave the screen to a 15-store chain in the Midwest. He had procured 41 email accounts of various corporations around the country and had sent out 16 emails by 10.30. But he hadn't eaten or had he changed his wrinkled clothes. His head buzzed and his eyes ached. The email went through as the phone line rang. Alan Sackett. Alan, this is Brian. I've been trying to get through since 6 o'clock. Alan closed his eyes and let the receiver dangle near his ear. I've been emailing out resumes. Hey, I'm sorry, AB. I am. Everyone's been calling me. You have a whole office full of people that are upset. I'm gone, Bry. He opened his eyes to a pasty face and flattened hair. Yeah, well, that's that's the game plan. Melinda, no? No way. I want another job in hand before I tell her anything. I just feel like I've lost all respect. Well, you didn't cause the crash. Yeah, right. Alan cut the conversation shot and said he'd see Brian once he got back to the city. He walked out of the hot tub and started the water. Back at the laptop, he emailed out another resume and was determined to regain everyone's respect. Then he stripped down and slid into the hot tub, placing his cell phone on the tiles. He felt the warm water surround his body, and his thoughts moved back eight years. Only months out of Northwestern, and he was hired as an assistant buyer at Lambert's Metro L.A. division. He never worked anywhere else, and had put all his energies into his career. Even the relationship with Melinda was subjugated to the job. She respected that, of course, and did the same. He wondered how she'd react to his being fired. Neither one of them had ever suffered a corporate loss. They both saw consecutive promotions advancing their careers. Brian knew her socially when she was with an investment house. Impressed with her devotion to her career, he insisted Alan meet her. Alan was never successful in her eyes. Alan left the hot tub, dressed, and had a late dinner across town. He chatted later at the bar with a few doctors from Riverside, skillfully avoiding his firing. He bought the drinks, and he later watched the bartender swipe his card through the scanner, 
and realized for the first time in years he might have to watch his expenses. He returned to his room and dragged out the laptop again to work on a financial statement for Nick. Melinda had warned him about going to cash. Even his software stocks had plummeted, and so did the older industries. Oil had risen, yet he had never bought more than a few hundred shares. Even more dismal were the mutual and growth funds. All his Lambert stocks were traded into other areas. Allen made the premier mistake of trying to run his own portfolio with no experience. He checked the overview on the blue and red spreadsheet. He sunk his head, and with clenched fists lodged next to his temple, he exhaled loudly. Next, he double-checked the loan status on the Miata, the Cadillac, and the boat docked at Marina del Rey. The bank had already been hesitant about reshuffling everything into a new equity loan. How did I let myself get into this debt? He had listened to those barroom weasels at Salinger's who told him to live on other people's money and just keep rolling over the loans. His only concern was monthly payments. Interest accumulated debt, debt ceilings were something he never considered. As he grabbed a wine cooler from the refrigerator, he knew the credit card debt would sink him. The chill slithered down his throat, and then he gulped it. After flipping on the news at the top of the hour, he turned to the laptop and sat at the table. He brought up eight major credit cards and six store cards. Those combined debts exceeded $100,000. He needed money, and he needed another job fast. Nobody ever questioned what he had done because his annual salary with bonuses was near three hundred grand. No one cared as long as the monthly payments were met, especially if the interest was added on top of the total. These companies loved a guy like him. He had the computer provide him with an estimate with three months' severance. Even if he was able to procure the hundred and fifteen thousand, he would still owe nearly his whole year's salary. After watching the news at the top of the hour at one a.m., he activated his resume up on the screen again, and with his eyes closed, Alan Sackett sent his long years of service with Lambert's into a data signal across the country to North Carolina. With any luck, the law of averages and numbers prevailed. He would land something quick and eliminate his debt. Downsize by R.P. Fitton, Chapter 3 because Alan needed money, he would have to brief Melinda about leaving Lambert's. He was still tired and his eyes ached. Near noon, he stopped sending out his resume. On Monday, he would make follow-up calls and his contacts within the industry would get him working again. He would use that spin when he spoke to Melinda, but he would not impart the severity of his debts. Paying down some of that credit card balance would free up extra credit. Melinda, still in dark business attire, walked briskly from the black limo. As she approached the hotel, she held her a thin leather briefcase close to her svelte body. Alan hunkered behind the lobby doors and tried to mimic her supreme confidence and perfect appearance. Her brown hair, permed and short, accentuated her tiny cheekbones and penetrating blue eyes. She maintained a calm posture, backed by an extensive portfolio and a persuasive demeanor. They were always considered a match set. Now Alan stood powerless as she burst through the outside door. A.B., A.B., Melinda. They exchanged a quick embrace, pecks on the cheek, and held hands for ten pacers. Her potent perfume provided a tantalizing scent. How did things go in Denver? Unbelievable about the market, huh? 
It's going to slide more in October, trust me. Well, that's the uh, business cycle. Did you liquidate? Oh, yes, I liquidated. She gazed around the lobby. Good to be back here, A.B. Break will give me time to plan my Texas trip. We face a major challenge in Houston midweek, but I can get into that later. By Christmas, I'll buy off all the losers who lost money in the crash today. By the way, let me congratulate you live on your monthly performance. Yes, the month was good. Alan's stomach tightened. He was convinced she might not understand the circumstances of his downsizing. It's good to see you in person. Video conferencing only goes so far. As they stepped up to the front desk, she squeezed his hand, but only for a second, as if it were part of some routine. I would say in some time the hot tub would be the prescribed activity. What do you think? Sounds good. Alan hoped relaxing in the room's hot tub would provide an adequate buffer before informing Melinda he was no longer with Lambert's, but she decided on a brief encounter under the sheets, which was an appropriate prelude to the long soak in the hot water. Alan complied and then found himself immersed in the bubbly, steaming water, listening to her business forecast. With so much on his mind, he closed his eyes a few times. She did everything by the book. It never bothered him till now. Maybe her agenda was irrelevant to his present predicament. Melinda checked her voicemail and then worked on her laptop. She dressed into a more informal white dress for dinner, and he donned a dark suit. He wanted to tell her. The phone rang. He watched her smooth brow furrow. She tilted her head and squinted. Who the hell is this message for? I don't understand why such a message would be... Yes, specifically for Alan Sackett. She held out the phone as Alan crossed the room, still looping his blue silk tie. This is Alan Sackett. Mr. Sackett, I have a message from Graybar International. They received your resume and would like to talk to you. Mr. Paulson will speak to you at 9 a.m. Monday morning. The number... I have the number, thank you. Well, what's that all about? She asked, adjusting her pearl earrings in the dresser mirror. Alan set the receiver back on the hook and looked up precariously. Changes are coming. Oh, you are so clever, she said, standing. You didn't even hint you were thinking of making a lateral move. Well, it isn't exactly a lateral move, Melinda. You're going right to the top, A.B. Alan left his bottom teeth exposed. I left Lambert's. Why? He shifted his weight and bit his upper lip. God, I don't know how to tell you this. What happened? I was, uh, was, uh, my position was eliminated. Melinda's mouth slowly opened like a drawbridge rising. His eyes assumed a constricted appearance, and she seemed to be weighing things in her own mind. That's absurd. Numbers don't lie. So you're out of work. Well, temporarily. This is not good. Hey, listen. No one's more upset about this than me. Bad image. First thing out of any CEO's mouth will be a question about your being let go. They won't understand anything but the facts, and the facts make you look bad, A.B. Her straight, cold logic and lack of empathy cut an angry surge into his gut. I would have wanted to hear some support. She moved back to the mirror and began applying her eyeshadow. You'll find something. At least you have your reserves. Alan stared at her and was stunned at her indifference. Listen, uh, during the transition, I need some movement in my cash flow. What? I mean, I need some help. She set down the mascara and pinched a pencil for her brows. 
She formed a neat, thin line, and without moving her lips or looking at Alan, she spoke in an analytical tone. Your selling off should give you enough cash. No, I need some cash until my assets spin around. I have a severe cash flow problem. Are you asking me for money? Yeah. I see. Well, interesting request. She turned and then stood again. You know, A.B., I can't believe that Nate Archer would approve a plan to eliminate your job if everything was on par, despite the market crash. What's that supposed to mean? It means that something else is going on. You don't get canned without a good reason. Yes, you do, said Alan. He moved closer. Listen, this isn't my fault. The market crashed. I'd be willing to postulate you never sold off anything. You lost everything, didn't you? Her upper teeth formed a sharp rim over her lower lip. Then she shook her head. Alan, I thought you primarily had more business prowess. Secondly, you don't even have the balls to admit that you have messed up your life. He grabbed her arm. I didn't mess up. Get your hand off me. Alan released his grip, but his teeth were clamped as he spoke. I guess I can see what happens when things get a little tough. Whose fault is that? She asked, picking up her white purse. What kind of a transparent relationship is this anyway? She raised her left brow and clutched her small purse. With a transient smile, she shook her head. Somebody once said that we best see ourselves against the river. Well, I guess it is this backward motion against the source, against the stream that we most see ourselves in. Robert Frost, West Running Brook. You've lost your mojo, Alan. You're a tower of jelly. Then she laughed, strutted by him and paused at the door. I'll be dining alone. Poolside, Alan held an untouched straight whiskey as the upper lights popped off. The bartender gave him a passing wave as he, too, left the darkened bar. Amidst the cluster of empty tables, Alan's mind was stuck within a myriad of conflicting thoughts. His anger at Melinda had not abated as he fixated on the iridescent blue pool water. More than not helping him with his cash flow, her attitude ate away at his self-confidence. He should have known he wouldn't have her emotional support. Her contingent love was the same as Nate Archer's loyalty. The praises flowed as long as last year's figures were squashed. The pool lights went out and Alan set down the drink on a dew-laden glass table. A bright starry sky beckoned above the desert as he wandered along the patio slabs. Going back to the room was not something he wanted to do. He crossed his arms over his chest and attempted to find the constellations he knew as a boy one summer back in Idaho. He thought back to that town when he was a kid, in Main Street, with its little stores and large cars. It was a time that seemed so long ago. He remembered the drugstore and the Rexall sign. He remembered a toy store that also sold souvenirs, and even a sporting goods place where he bought his new baseball glove. All the way down to the mobile station, it was a quiet town, in a place long, long ago. Light pollution dimmed his viewing and he walked the grounds. Tomorrow morning he would take a return flight back to the city. His first priority involved calling the banks and selectively coalescing his present conundrum. Brian had a raft of connections that could help him or direct him to the proper sources. 
Alan would also work the phone and secure an interview for a new position. He could turn his problems around rapidly when all his energies were directed into the job effort. The skies over LAX were hazy, as was his future. She had acted swiftly and decisively, as she always did, freeing herself from any unwise financial entanglement. Alan thought back to early this morning, when he returned to the room. Melinda's clothes were gone from the closet, laptop missing from the table, and her bags removed from the room. A quick check of the front desk confirmed her departure to parts unknown. He called her voicemail and left a scathing message, regretting it later as he lay awake sweating all night in the hotel bedroom. As the plane dipped for descent, the congested freeway traffic snarled below. A few weeks away might help him forget about the shallowness of the relationship with Melinda once he had secured the Graybar job. She hadn't answered any voicemail messages, nor did he think she would. Melinda was the least of his problems. Brian agreed to meet with him for lunch and had some possibilities for improving cash flow. Alan wore a sharp-cut blue suit, new tie, and shirt, and had his shoes shined in the Nuevo lobby. He acted as if he were still employed. He ordered drinks and thought about his efforts that morning. Lambert's personnel assured him they would cut a severance check as soon as he signed the hard copy of the release agreement, stating he would not take any legal action against the company. He could begin the debt reduction once they had transferred the severance money. Other major companies also had responded positively to his resumes, boosting his spirits. Right! Brian buttoned his suit jacket and glanced at the table, but he studied Alan as he crossed the room. Come on over, Brian, sit down, relax. You get another job? He asked as he sat. A perplexed look lingered on his face. Why did Melinda call you back? The answer to both questions, my friend, is no, and I'm moving out of the Nuevo. Right. Did you find a bank to consolidate your debts? Alan's smile dropped. Not good. Word is out. They all know I've been fired and I lost my ass in the market. That's odd. You said you might have some suggestions, said Alan, fiddling with his glass. I do. The waitress appeared. Brian smiled and lifted the leather-bound menu. He ordered a turkey sandwich quickly and some tomato soup. Alan asked for a salad, and as the waitress left, he leaned forward and folded his hands. You have another bank or source? Well, not exactly, Alan. I know certain questionable people. Listen, you have considerable debt and meant nothing as long as the check kept coming in and the investments rolled over. We don't need to rehash whatever mistakes I made. What do I do? Brian flipped his business card and handed it to Alan. A single local number was scrawled in green ink. I know this guy, Gonzalez. You call this number and you'll get a La Mirada connection that he gave me. Ask for Roscoe. Okay. Roscoe can take care of the situation and reduce everything to a long-term commitment. Heavy interest. Like you have a choice? Alan closed his eyes briefly. The money would soon flow again once another job materialized, and then he could settle with this Roscoe. Is this guy reputable? Who cares? Brian sipped the drink and smiled and then produced a full laugh. But A.B., you don't make the payments and they'll do what they have to do. Well, hopefully I won't need this guy. You better hope you don't need him. He'll solve your short-term problem, but he'll be lurking out there. You'll still owe every cent and more. 
Downsize by R.P. Fitton, Chapter 4. Since his firing, Allen's cash reserves dwindled. Because of the downturn in the economy, his job prospects were not good. At the Nuevo, Allen accelerated his pace, following up on each resume he had emailed from Palm Springs. He sent out additional emails to other firms. Gray Bar and a company called Seaball International hinted at pending interviews. As he worked the telephone, Allen heard the oft-repeated line about how someone in personnel would file his resume, but because of the downturn in the economy, prospects were bleak. He answered his third line as he worked his PC. Yes. Is this Alan B. Sackett? Yes, it is. Mr. Sackett, this is Andrea Bledsco. I work for Cellforce USA. What can I do for you, Miss Bledsoe? He asked, typing in another potential lead into the computer. We are showing here an overdue balance on your Cellforce USA account. Perhaps your payment is in the mail. My payment is going to be late. Please expedite a payment to prevent a suspension of service. Alan pinched the bridge of his nose. I'll take care of it. He threw the cell phone on the rug and stormed across the kitchenette and kicked the chair. Earlier in the morning, he had received a similar call from one of his credit card companies. He grabbed a wine cooler from the refrigerator and walked onto the balcony. Even the Nuevo was demanding several thousand dollars in back payments and fees. The developing pattern was not good, and would only worsen until he received the severance paycheck. Yet he still needed the email documents releasing Lamberts from any obligation from a lawsuit. He leaned on the balcony railing. The San Gabriel Mountains poked like floating rock chunks above the morning haze. He shook his head, swished the wine in the glass, and chided himself for not paying more attention to his debts. He rushed back inside when the kitchen line sounded, but he hesitated. Alan Sackett. Nick. Did you get my email? He let the liquid trickle down his throat. Yeah, that's why I'm calling. It was a part of your original contract with Lambert's that, well, could be construed rather liberally. You are technically in charge until the end of the year. <laughs> not anymore. All right. Alan paced the kitchenette, dragging the phone's wall cord behind. Don't get too excited. They won't pay any severance until the suit is settled. Instead of a hundred plus, you could be looking at half a million. Or if we lose, nothing. And legal bills. Yes. I don't expect an answer right now, but I'm sure they're pressuring you to sign a termination agreement. Then they want it all locked up. Agreed. Thanks, Nick. I'll have to consider the entire picture here. I'll have an answer for you. Good. I hope to hear from you. Alan hung up the phone and returned to the balcony. The hummingbirds darted between the bright flowers in the gardens below. All his problems would end suddenly if he leaped onto the concrete. He finished the wine cooler, smiled, and set the bottle on the table. He wanted to pursue the lawsuit, but that would freeze up any credit and virtually shut him down unless he moved into another position immediately. Finding another job might take time. He pulled out Brian's business card and glanced at Roscoe's number. Calling Roscoe, no matter what the interest rate, would eliminate the debts and winning the lawsuit would pay off Roscoe. 
sounded easy. Without hesitation, he retreated inside and dialed Roscoe's number. Not surprisingly, he was connected to an answering machine, and a gruff, crude voice told Collis there was nobody home. Allen mentioned no names, explained he was deep in debt, and needed prompt consideration on a loan. Then he blurted out his second cell phone number, hung up the phone, and held the receiver for a long time. He grabbed his second cell phone, walked outside, and fell back into the lounger. The sun warmed his face, and his eyelids glowed red. He never would have called Roscoe if there was no chance of winning the lawsuit. With the severance, he might reduce some of the debt, and with a new job, whittle everything down. But with no severance presently, he had to turn to Roscoe. Alan heard the distant sound of the cell phone. He opened his eyes, and the ringer blasted in his ear. All right, all right. He reached for the phone, knocking it off the side table, and finally scooped it off the artificial turf. Hello, Mr. Sackett. This is McGowan calling again from Barkley, Idaho. Attorney McGowan, you're either the biggest pain in the neck or a very persistent man. You're batting a thousand. Is this a good time? Alan gripped the phone tighter, stood and strolled away from the hot sun. As good a time as any other. I received a letter from somebody in town, a Mrs. Hennessy, I think it was, telling me Aunt Amanda had died. I haven't seen Aunt Amanda since I was up there one summer when I was a kid. McGowan cleared his throat. Amanda was a saint of a lady, and so was your Uncle Ned. Ned was a practical joker. Got me a number of times. Amanda died with accounts open on that store. Forgave all the debts on her deathbed. God rest her soul. Alan opened the refrigerator and took out another wine cooler. He poured himself a larger glass. So now the little store is all that's left. I've still got my baseball cards from up there. I'm afraid the store is not in the best of shape, Mr. Sackett. Please call me Alan. Good. You can call me Mr. McGowan. <laughs> he said, producing a deep belly laugh. No, seriously. Call me Charlie. We're not talking about a large real estate transaction here, Alan. More of a pain in the butt to drag yourself away from your job and all the way up here to Idaho. Alan gulped the wine cooler. How, uh, how much are we talking, Charlie? With the land, it's near the railroad, but the railroad doesn't stop here anymore. I don't know, maybe 60 if you're lucky. I'll have to check with Hershey Edwards. He's the real estate man, Amanda, wanted handling all of this. She left the store to you. Hold on. Alan finished the cooler. The sun had drained his stamina. McGowan then read a note from Alan's aunt. Says, Alan, I want you to have my store, and maybe some of the memories from that summer long ago will be forever in your heart. She also made it clear that if you sold the store, she wanted Hershey to get the commission. Alan's eyes moistened for a moment. Sure, I have uh, no objection to that. Listen, I have some free time here. Let me fly up there for a few days and see what that store looks like. I'll need a place to stay. Well, I'm sure Mrs. Pillsbury has a spare cubbyhole in her rooming house. I'll call Hershey and have him begin the process, put a sign out there, etc. Is there any stock in the store? Tennessee has done a complete inventory, a ton of old stuff spanning 50 years. 
again, this is a very small general store, Alan. Can you email it to me? A store? Ho, 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 ho. Again, the deep belly laugh rumbled through the transmission. Alan grinned. No, the inventory. Sure, if we could get that information, we'd be glad to email it to you. Maybe Albert down the drugstore can help me out with it. Alan remembered Albert, a gawky guy with pushback black hair, behind the counter of a wood-framed drugstore with a soda fountain and spinning fans along a high, ornate-paneled ceiling. He thought about how he spent afternoons slurping down ice cream sodas with his friends and then crossed Main Street, looking back at the Rexall sign. Then he would walk up to the huge fork in the road by the Brick Town Hall to watch the Summer League baseball games. Hey, Charlie, nix the email. I'll make arrangements on my end to get up there. Look, I'll call you. I won't even ask for a cell number. Good. You won't get one. That's funny. It was nice chatting with you, Charlie. You know, I had forgotten about that summer. I'll be looking forward to meeting you, Alan. Bye now. Alan picked up the cell phone and stared at the TV monitor, still on cable news. But his mind was back 30 years ago with a baseball glove hanging on a bat balanced on his shoulder. He was with Suni, walking down a dirt road leading to the general store. Suni, curly hair pushing out of a giant's hat, raced him under the trees near the railroad tracks. She usually won and was inside the counter ordering popsicles from Aunt Amanda by the time Alan arrived. Things were so quiet back then. In 30 years, the place was probably laced with strip developments. He dialed Melinda's voicemail from his kitchen phone. As the phone line connected, he soon discovered that the entire number sequence was already altered. He was listening to a computerized voice telling him to contact the originator of the mailbox, so he complied and called Melinda's condo in Brea. He watched the sports segment on the news as her line rang. He ripped the receiver away as a disjointed signal blared in his ear. So now the condo number has changed. I don't believe this. Four years down the drain because I lost my job, Melinda. He set down the phone and went back to the computer, activating his email. Without prior thought, he typed in a concise message, stating he wanted to speak with her before she walked out of his life. He called her an insensitive drone, and then he sent it without regret. His cell phone rang. Alan Sackett. The voice gyrated through the earpiece. Sackett, this is Roscoe. I understand uh, you uh, need some help. Yeah, big time to tide me over until the next job comes through. How much are you in Hawk? Oh, you wouldn't believe it, <laughs> said Alan with a wispy laugh. I've seen it all, Sackett. How much do you need? 489000 it's not that bad. I've got severance coming. Alan's heart raced for the first time since he was in Arch's office. Got another job? You got a car? You got a condo? I do, but those assets are in consolidation loans with no equity. Probably owe the friggin' bank six times over. They don't mean shit liquid capital in my hands. Listen, Buddy Bryant spelled everything out. You're a real high roller, Sackett. We'll foot you two fifty. 250. I thought you guys had money. We do. You don't. Look, just bring it up to three and add more interest on it. You don't understand. You don't miss deadlines with us, Sackett. Alan sat back in the kitchen chair. What about the interest? What about it? 
pay me six grand a month unless you resolve this early. You got a minimum of twenty-five grand regardless. I got a lawsuit pending. I'm good for it, Roscoe. I told you already. We already checked you out, Sackett. Don't go blowing your own horn. I already knew about your cars, the Mammoth Lake condo, the boat at Marina Del Rey. Meet me Thursday morning, 2.45 a.m., Maggie's place. Where is... North Hollywood, right on the boulevard. You'll find it. That's a pretty seedy area. Yeah, well, this is a pretty seedy deal. 2.45, second. They usually wait for only 15 minutes. You can buy the coffee. We'll get the bastards off your back. You pay us, and everybody will be happy. Understand? Understood. Downsized by R.P. Fitton. Chapter 5. Alan was happy leaving the city. Up the coast, the jet veered inland, high above the wrinkled brown peaks. Since he awoke, he thought more about Aunt Amanda and how his family had lost touch with her after his parents' divorce. It was impossible now to know whether his father, long since passed away, had talked with her over the years. He pulled out a magazine from the plastic holder on the seat ahead. With great relief, he paid off the credit cards and left the rest of Roscoe's loan in trust with Nick. If the gray bar job came through, everything would work out quickly. From talking with the people in the North Carolina office, he figured a job interview would take place as early as next week. He leaned back in the seat, placed the magazine on his lap, and smiled as he pictured Roscoe inside the side restaurant off Hollywood Boulevard. A compact little man, Roscoe had spun slowly on a chrome stool, and his slick hair glistened white under the flickering fluorescent tubes. He wiped his knobby nose. From under his gray, shiny suit, he removed a red nylon fanny pack, secured around his wide stomach, and handed it to Alan. $250,000 in crisp bills were lined inside. He pointed toward the two guys with ponytails, dangling earrings, standing near the door. They saluted, smiled, and flashed two automatic weapons from under their coats. Roscoe told Alan to pay for his coffee. Alan performed the odd ritual and strapped the fanny pack around his waist. And the first payment of 6000 was due at 2 a.m. on October 15th and would be 6000 a month at this coffee shop on the 15th until his lawsuit was settled. Then he would pay in full. The two goons at the door would later escort him to his car via a back door and follow him back to the Nuevo. But Roscoe's last words shook Alan, and he could still hear them vividly in his thoughts. You screw up, Sackett, and they'll kill you. And they'll take and do whatever they have to do. In his job interviews, Alan would negotiate for 25000 a month. Once the job came through and he won the lawsuit, he would forget all the bad times. He would use the proceeds of Aunt Amanda's general store to bring down the car balances. He pushed his teeth together as he closed his eyes and the plane completed its turn. The tingling in his stomach and the reoccurring headaches signaled now how much the pressure was ripping him apart. Everything he had set in motion now had to unfold perfectly. Alan left the airport in a darkened limo, but failed to understand that Barclay was three and a half hours out of Boise up in Coeur d'Alene. He slept in the limo along the interstate, but once on a smaller highway, he requested the driver to open the window. With autumn, the leaves formed a vivid, colorful border on the interstate. 
He viewed a rock-strewn mountain stream tracing the trees along the highway slopes. The brilliant orange and yellow leaves were like an enchanted forest. He sensed both confidence and freedom from the torment. The limo driver pointed to the break between the mountain peaks. A black and white sign with a small black arrow pointed left toward Barkley, still 35 miles through the hills. Another 45 minutes, depending on who you get behind these roads. You know, I remember when my dad was taking this turn, Vince, but it's been 30 years. So you used to live up here, Mr. Sackett? No, I spent one summer up here. My aunt and uncle owned a little red general store outside of town. Lovely store. My aunt just passed away. Now I'm going to arrange to sell that store. The driver nodded in the mirror, and Alan leaned back. For a moment, he wished he were ten years old, with his father taking the turn at the mountains. He closed his eyes and visualized lying in bed, listening to his aunt's voice, telling him to get a good night's sleep because tomorrow would be a big day. He would hear the shrill train whistle approaching town. Everything was possible during that summer. The limo's blinker sounded. Vince waited for a truck to pass and then swung north. Alan closed his eyes and pretended his father was driving. Times were innocent. He was not caught up in the grip of his adult problems. But the plaguing concerns cascaded back like the onward stream waters. He would spend no more than a week in Barclay. Just enough time to set up the real estate transaction. Phone calls would consummate the deal. He would fly out once the people from Graybar or any other prospect called his cell phone. The limo climbed upward into the forested canyons and along another rapidly moving stream. Roscoe's wrinkled countenance overlapped the blue skies and the towering timber-packed mountains. He now questioned whether he should have dealt with this guy at all. You ever drive the limo out this far? Vince grinned. I usually drop people off within a 20-mile radius of Boise, but that's it. But this is a welcome change. I haven't been up in this neck of the woods for a couple of years. Wife and I brought the kids up here to one of the lakes. If uh, you get the chance, try the swimming. They have water skiing up here. Alan nodded. Up the dirt road from Aunt Amanda's store was a lake where the boys used to swim. Beyond the tire swing was a cove leading to a larger lake where he once hiked. One time, Suni's father rowed a boat out to a distant island, and they stayed at a small cabin for a few days. Lakes are all clear up here. I remember that. Where'd you say you was from? Los Angeles. Mars. What do you mean? L.A.? Well, you might as well be from Mars compared to Coeur d'Alene. It's heaven up here. God's country. Ever since McGowan's call, Alan had thought about his ten-year-old friend. He smiled slowly. Soon he was 40 years old, if she was still up here. No doubt married with a family. Maybe they could go back to Albert's Drugstore and have an ice cream soda. They were near a small town nestled within the hills. The road to Barkley passed through this village. Where are we? Seaver. We have to head through Carnerville. Then we hit Route 9 another half hour. The sun flickered through the open window and relaxation crept in like a nourishing dip from an intravenous plastic bag. This might be a good place to buy land, maybe build a vacation home with a dock and a small boat. Not like the oversized vessel he now had housed at Marina del Rey. Mr. Sackett, we're coming to the Barclay town line. Alan pushed his face out the window into the influx of fresh air. His trim blonde hair became a mass of intertwined fibers. He smiled as he kept his head in the blast. This is great!
A blue windswept lake was partially visible over a rounded forested ridge, and a few stray fair weather clouds retained a puffy presence over the distant grape-tinted mountains. Alan propped his folded arms on the window frame as the limo passed a peeling green sign at the Barkley Town line. You don't breathe air like that in L.A., do you? Nope. Alan tightened his brow. To his right, grass blades pushed through the asphalt cracks of a long drive lined with rusted metal light poles. Atop the hill was a vacant, enormous cinderblock building boarded up with high grass along its edges. What's that? Vince shrugged his shoulders. I don't know. Looks abandoned, though, doesn't it? Alan slid across the limo seat. The lake materialized again as they passed the ridge and wondered about Sunni's Island somewhere across that vast lake. He followed the shoreline until the limo passed into a tunnel of trees. Leaning back, he pictured the old swimming hole. Two-story houses, probably built in the early 1900s, mostly white and needing paint, passed along the highway. He sensed a familiarity, but had no direct memories of this area. He remembered the railroad tracks, dissected the highway, and the dirt road next to Aunt Amanda's general store. Alan lifted his head, letting the outside air brush against his face, watering his eyes. Two red glass warning lights atop silver poles were a few hundred yards away on either side of the highway. He had long since forgotten how Uncle Ned would bring the neighborhood kids in his pickup and follow the train along the back roads north till it crossed the river trestle. Somehow he knew the locations of all the railroad crossings around Barkley and would get there before the train, start the pickup, and parallel the train to the next stop. My uncle used to follow the train, Alan yelled through the whistling air. Really? He squinted and passed a few smaller houses. The crossing lights and gates came into view. As he slid across the limo seat, the red-tiled Barkley station appeared between the road and the track. He and Sunni, sometimes other kids, would hang around the oak-paneled interior, sipping on Cokes and chewing fruit-striped gum as they gave names to some of the passengers disembarking from the long green cars. The railroad station was in no better shape than the rest of the abandoned cinderblock building west of town. Like missing teeth, their faded red tiles exposed the station to the elements. Grass and a few yellow wildflowers pushed through the concrete cracks, and a rusted blue passenger train car merged onto the ground and bushes. Alan strained his neck to catch a glimpse of the passenger platforms through the open station doorway. He longed again for that one summer and the time forever gone. The years had not only passed, but the outward appearances indicated the town had lost its fervor. Across the tracks, at the signal crossing, the kids played ball beyond the tree clumps in the open field. His smile widened, and the faded red, L-shaped store, two stories high, appeared beyond the corn stalks down the dirt road. Can you pull over for a second? Vince watched him in the mirror. Sure. My aunt's store is just down that dirt road. You want me to drive down there? No, not yet. I'll get down there later. The limo slowed and rumbled over the tracks and finally stopped under a spreading tree in front of the old brick house where Kenny Baines used to live. He focused on the store, clapboards pinker with age, and the black sign's gold lettering faded above the lengthy outside porch. A shiny blue pickup was parked facing the cornfield, and a blue and white for sale sign was stuck in the grass. He clamped his jar and turned away, pulling a neatly folded piece of paper from his pants pocket. McGowan is on the corner of Elm and Main. 
No quote, Mr. Sackett? I'll give you a quote. Home is where the heart is. I'm not sure who said it. Vince nodded, checked the mirror as he pulled back on the road. With the windows open, the sunshine brightened the harvested fields on the road into town. He remembered houses near town set back from the road, sloping toward the far hills. Most were not maintained well now, and some were abandoned to creeping grass. Past the town's older wood-framed buildings where the highway ended on Main Street, a crisp new American flag hung high above a towering, worn brick town hall. Another flag, a few blocks away, flapped near the slab stone post office where he used to receive letters during the summer. The post office provided the first exact match for his memories. Vince pulled to the curb and Alan asked directions from an elderly man seated on a wooden bench. The old man kept raising his hand to his ear. Elm Street? Where is Elm Street? Elm Street, where is Elm Street? Fine, how are you? Name is Gimble, Alan smiled. We're looking for Elm Street, Mr. Gimble. Sunny through the weekend. McGowan, Attorney McGowan, he said, cupping his hands. Oh, Charlie's on Elm Street, left at the lights. Then take your first right. Thank you, I appreciate it. Yeah, me too. People peered out the storefronts, and a couple of passerby stared at the limo as if some big deal celebrity were blowing into town. Vince pulled away. More people gathered at the corner as the limo slowed for the lights. Think we'd just arrived from deep space. You have. Alan laughed, tilting his head back and nodding. The small town gave him again a lost piece. Main Street still had viable storefronts. Not like he had remembered, but many stores were empty toward the town hall at the road fork. A handwritten sign out front alluded to a band concert on Friday night. Before he left, he could take in an evening baseball game if they were still playing, behind the field at Town Hall. The limo nudged forward and turned right. Alan looked at the green light as they swept past a few small stores. He was surprised to see Benson's, owned by Sunni's mother and father, still in business. He looked inside past the clothing racks and saw a gray-haired lady at the register. Vince slowed and Alan swung his head into the hot air again. The next set of lights, a corner building housing a bank, faced Main Street and Elm. McGowan's name was emblazoned in gold black frame letters across the second floor window. Alan Sackett has arrived. I think you're going to be a celebrity while you're here. Well, I won't be here long enough for that. The limo moved diagonally under the green light, taking a space near the bank. Alan opened the door just before the car stopped and stepped onto the curb. He put his hand on his hips and stretched his legs as he panned down Main Street to the town hall. I'm going to get some jogging in while I'm up here. What a place. Fresh air, mountains, small town America. That's what it is, Vince, small town America. Vince unlocked the trunk and began removing the luggage. I don't think you're going to leave here. Right. I never thought of this as a vacation of sorts. Alan thought about Melinda. When they were together, traveling to an isolated town was out of the question. I'm going to lay back, relax, and then face the world. Vince stood with all the bags near the rear bumper. Sure is away from everything up here. Alan moved along the side of the limo. Let me help you with those bags, Vince. No, no, that's my job. Not today it isn't. Alan grabbed the two suitcases, draped his suit coat over his arm, and waited for the light to change. He walked quickly across a pale white crosswalk and climbed up to the sidewalk. 
McGowan's office was on the second floor of the brick Wilkins building, according to the stone molding, built in 1888. He set down one suitcase and then opened the door facing Elm Street. He loosened his tie at the wide wooden staircase's stifled air. Gripping the suitcase handles, he commenced the arduous journey to the second floor. Oh, you gotta be in shape for this, said Vince, breathing heavily from behind. Too many cigarettes. Don't they believe in air conditioning up here? asked Alan. They do. It's a big secret. Alan waited on the worn, dusty wooden floor. A number of offices with milky glass doors and upper transoms lined the open corridor. He removed his tie and unbuttoned his shirt. Well, at least you get back to the car and crank up the air. I will. Thanks, Vince. I needed that. Constant complaint is the poorest sort of pay for all the comforts we enjoy. Benjamin Franklin. I figured another quote was coming. Alan passed the staircase and found McGowan's open office door about 20 feet away. The front office was empty, but he recognized McGowan's brusque voice on the rear office phone. Under the Venetian blinds, propped on the desk, were two spit-polished brown shoes. Just set them down anywhere, said Alan, looking at the spinning fan above. I'll be right with you, said McGowan. Alan slipped his leather wallet from his suit coat pocket. The limo was already paid for by credit card, but he placed a $100 bill into Vince's hand. Thanks for your help there, Vince. Thank you. I hope you and your friend meet again. Oh, you mean Sunni? Well, I gotta find her first. Have a good stay here, Mr. Sackett. Enjoy the time you have. I will. Thank you. Vince tipped his hat and scurried into the hallway. In the inner office doorway, a pudgy-faced man with a crop of flawless gray hair, wearing blue pinstripe pants, leaned against the frame. His sleeves were rolled up, and his bright red polka-dot tie was in place. That was a mighty big tip. Don't let folks around here see you flashing that money, Mr. Sackett. You'll start out with a bad reputation. Hundred-dollar bills are scarce up here. Alan smiled and squeezed McGowan's smooth hand. Nice to meet you, Mr. McGowan, and thanks for the advice. Have a good flight, did you? I did, but I must say it's good to return up here. That's right. You were up here when you were a kid. Long time ago. His eyes were sharp, and Alan perceived his intelligence was not reflected by the whimsical intonations in his voice. I was ten years old. <laughs> you were just a pup, Alan. Well, I'm glad you like it up here. One thing about our town is its remoteness, what I like to call a timeless quality. Alan grinned and glanced toward the window. Go ahead, look outside if that's what you want to do. Window's right there. Alan crossed the wood floor and looked down to Main Street toward the town hall. Guess it is timeless, although I saw a building all closed up on the way into town. Ah, International Circuit's gone overseas. Mainstay after the war provided 256 full-time jobs and half that number in part-time work and work for kids during summer vacation. What happened to all the people who worked there? Some went to L.A. Ho, ho, ho. He held his stomach and laughed. Alan grinned. Others were hurting. Long-term unemployment. Some got old. Some died. It's been nine years. We did everything we could, short of bribes, to keep that place here. Have Kenny Baines talk about that. Little Kenny Baines with the Raleigh bike. He was the only kid on the road with a three-speed. 
The rest of us had little Schwins and Columbias. Well, little Kenny is the president of the Barclay Credit Union. Probably still owns the Raleigh. Nice man. He's lived here all his life. He stood up against them bastards. Really. Darn tootin'. He fought that plan along with everyone else, but labor was cheaper in Taiwan or wherever they sent it. So everyone else suffers. Your aunt's store is a prime example. With nobody working, nobody wants to visit a general store. Times have been tough. I saw the houses on the way in. I could tell that. Yes, sir. They need work, too. But anyways, getting back to your little sojourn up here. I think if the plant were still in operation, you might get more for Amanda's store. As a matter of fact, Ned would do backflips if he knew the asking price. What is the asking price? Well, Hershey says you can't get more than 50 on a good day. On an okay day, 40. And if nobody's buying, well, I don't even want to think about that. I see. What about as an investment? Can it be fixed up? McGowan produced a blank face and continued to stare at Alan. He took out a cigar from his box and lit it. Cigar? No, no thanks. Oh, you're one of those exercise types, are you? I do exercise, yes. <laughs> I thought so. Now, about the store. Fixed up for what? Alan, I just got through telling you no one will come in here. Unless you drop them in by parachute, you could consider any effort put into that store as a waste of time. That's what I needed to know. Hershey has this thing listed. A steady stream of people moved in and out of the post office down the street. Heck yeah, all the way down to Cornerville. That far, huh? Hey, never mind with your big city sophistication. We live a different lifestyle up here. I suggest you take advantage of that while you're up here. Well, I would find that refreshing. Alan turned back. Was my aunt sick very long? McGowan shook his head. She walked downstairs last June, opened the register, counted the money, fell over and died. He snapped his fingers. Over real quick. We should all be that lucky. Your aunt was a wonderful woman. I dated her in high school. They still have records that far back? Asked Alan, testing his sense of humor. Oh, oh, yeah, they go back. You can start by calling me Charlie. Okay, Charlie, I don't remember you when I was a kid. I was away that summer. I had a case up in Washington State. His eyes tightened. So, look, I called Mrs. Pillsbury. She has a room for you. Now I can call this guy Hershey. Maybe light a fire under his butt. McGowan gave him the same frozen look, this time locking the cigar into the picture. Alan. Al. Mr. Sackett. This isn't Smog Valley. We move at a slower pace, and the more fires you light, the slower it goes. I call it our uncertainty principle. Any questions on quantum physics can go to Mr. Eaton at the high school physics department. I have to say it will take some realigning on my part. I'm used to grinding out results 15, 16 hours a day. McGowan kept the cigar pinched between his incisors and put his arm around Alan. Alan, talk to me when you leave and see if you still want to go back to the thick of it. I'll lay odds that you'll have to realign on the other end. Well, if you say so. Alan smiled again. He liked McGowan's hometown simplicity. So when's the next baseball game? Are they still playing in the league up here? Absolutely. Cascade League goes right until the first snowfall. Ah, that's it. Cascade League. Still rolling along. You can see them play tonight, but Alan, 
when they pass that hat, don't go dumping in $20 bills. One buck, maybe five, that's it. All right, all right. He found himself constantly grinning. I guess it's off to Mrs. Pillsbury's rooming house. I know what the next question is. How do I get my luggage over there? Alan nodded. I drive an 82 Lincoln. It has a trunk the size of the Grand Canyon. Good. Tell me where to... Whoa, whoa. Hold your horses. I have to make a few phone calls and finish up some paperwork. He moved his hands down as if he were holding them over a hot stove. I don't think Mrs. Pillsbury is going anywhere. Sit down and take it easy, Alan. I've got Time Magazine up to three weeks ago. The rest are back at my house. And by the way, welcome to Barker. Now Alan is forced to claim his aunt's money or face his debtors. And he will have some time in this rural area of Idaho that would allow him to relax. He's hesitant to tell his girlfriend Melinda, a corporate lady who likes only good results. The story resembles Rod Serling's patterns about corporate pressures and Serling's a stop at Willoughby in the Twilight Zone where James Daly caves into corporate pressure. Only Alan Sackett lives and Daly's character, Gart Williams, goes to that big corporate boardroom in the sky. I'm Robert P. Fitton on the plane to Coeur d'Alene. Next stop, not Willoughby, but Barkley, Idaho. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com, or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.